Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. We'll be back in just a few seconds with Matt Taibbi to talk about the conflict in Ukraine. And please don't forget, there's a donate button, a share button, a subscribe button, all the buttons. It's very easy to explain war by declaring your enemy is evil. In fact, I suppose that's as old as war itself. Uh, it's very easy to explain Hitler away by talking him as the greatest evil, when we all know he's the product of German monopoly capitalism and the, a general crisis of capitalism at the time in the 19, late 20s and 30s. But why is it when we're actually in the situation, we don't talk about the crisis and products of monopoly capitalism, we're right back to good and evil again. And of course, from every side. Uh, of course, the Western press, led by United States, has for quite a few years declared Putin to be the definition of evil. And of course, Putin says that about the Americans and about the Ukrainian government and, and so on and so it goes. But it's not. I personally don't think there actually is such a thing of, uh, uh, as evil. Uh, there is actual social phenomena. There's history. There's a, a system that gives rise to people who then play out what's possible for them to play out, given where, they, where they're at, what country they're born in, what class they're born in, and, and where the geopolitics in life is at. Well, Matt Taibbi has written a great piece that explains just who... Vladimir Putin is about the rise of Putin in a way that deals with that the fact deals with the fact that he's the product of a set of circumstances. He's a product of US and other Western geopolitical maneuvering and most importantly, domestic developments. Because in all of this, and this is what I think is interesting, even the American left is so American-centric. There's not an event in the world that takes place that isn't explained either by in the by the left section of the left America the bad or a section of the liberal left America the good but sometimes it's not all about America it's also about what's happening happening inside each of these countries and i say matt's done a great piece about the rise of putin and here he is. Now joining us is Matt Taibbi. He's an award-winning investigative reporter, was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and writes a top-rated column on Substack. Thanks very much for joining me, Matt. Thanks for having me, Paul. So before we get into talking about your piece about the rise of Putin, um, let's just let me just, I'll just for the record say, I think people have heard me say it before, and you can say what you want to say, uh, that the invasion of Ukraine cannot be justified by either, this is me giving my opinion here, uh, American involvement in the 20, events of 2014, which I think were a coup, but weren't only a coup. There was a mass character what happened in 2014 in the United States and sections of the Ukrainian oligarchy took advantage of those, uh, that mass protest, which was also, I think, a protest against the oligarchy in general, but it was in the end a coup. And uh, Putin has, uh, and Russia has a right to be concerned about it, the expansion of NATO, but it doesn't justify the killing of civilians and the invasion of Ukraine. Okay, so that's me. Over to you, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I would add is there's been a lot of um, propaganda in the United States 
to the effect of, you know, anybody who brings up the idea that it might have been unwise to try to expand NATO to Georgia and Ukraine um, is dishing Putin's narrative or hitting Russian talking points. Um, I, I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine is uh, monstrous, barbaric, uh, crazy. It's uh, it, it, it's irrational on a number of levels. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I, I think that our policies have been wise and that there aren't things to criticize about uh, NATO's expansion. Um, I mean, having lived in the region throughout a lot of these decisions, um, I know exactly how Russians feel about this. And I think there was a... Um, a sort of a decision to overlook what the likely response was going to be that was very conscious on our part. Um, so both things can be true. The, the invasion can be unjustified and wrong and 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 um, and worthy of you know criticism. Uh, and we can look back and be critical of our own policies. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And just to add, this is a battle of competing oligarchs, including American oligarchs for control of Ukraine, one of the, you know, not just the breadbasket of Europe and, and much of the world, but also a, a place which has a significant industry, a significant arms industry, a large population, what is it, 44 million people. Uh, th this is an important piece of, 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 of Europe. And, and the, all the oligarchs, and you have to start, I think, actually with the Ukrainian oligarchs and understand the split there and, and the battle between the, both section of oligarchs, pro-American, pro-Russian, all corrupt up to their eyeballs. Uh, but so are the American. And, and I, I agree with, and I, I, and I think what you're saying, and, and especially for us living in North America, I mean, I go back and forth between US and Canada. You know, we have a particular responsibility when we're living in the heart of the hegemon, uh, to critique it, because none of this happens out of the context of that U.S. power. That said, it doesn't excuse any of it. Um, so I think we're agreeing with each other. Yeah, now, just really quickly, if ahead. I could yeah. add, um, you know, I saw a friend of mine, Lee, Lee Fong, the other day uh, was tweeting out that, um, you know, people are comparing this to, well, what if what if uh, Russian forces had built up in Mexico and the United States had, had uh, exercised its Monroe Doctrine philosophy and invaded uh, Mexico to prevent a, prevent a Russian buildup in that country. Well, that would make sense to Americans, and that's a comparable situation. But we'd probably also, I think, people in the rest of the world would, would critique the United States for doing that, for for engaging in a preemptive inv invasion of another country. I, and so, I, I think it's important to recognize that while there are things that are understandable about the Russian point of view, like especially if you're an American uh, who's who's grown up being taught the Monroe Doctrine is is a legitimate way of looking at the world, the Russians see their sphere of influence in roughly the same way that doesn't excuse it it's just an explanation for, for why this all happens and I, I mean we could talk a bit about it i didn't want to get too far into this right now because i really i think your article about the ri uh, rise of putin is sensational and i want to talk about it but there's something about this which i don't get and and maybe you have some insight having been there and you know, know more about putin than i do there was no threat of NATO going into Ukraine. I don't buy it. It wasn't happening. Every, everybody in, was saying that knows NATO, that they would never get consensus to allow NATO in. Um, the, uh, 
There was no imminent threat of Ukraine attacking Russia. I buy that there could have been some scheme up to attack in Donbass, that eastern region, uh, mostly Russian. But there were other ways to help it defend Donbass, if that was true. So I kind of don't even get this, that being a thing to stop the expansion of NATO. And And then this idea that he would then go into NATO from the other side. Oh, if he goes into Ukraine, he'll go into Lithuania. It's nonsense. Uh, I was an article in one of the Canadian papers today that the the actual uh, state of military readiness in these uh, NATO countries that used to be Soviet republics on the whole is so bad that nobody was taking seriously that they were actually ever going to be under threat. That's what they're rushing soldiers there left because it's ridiculous. There's no, this isn't the days of colonization. The Soviet empire worked because there were local ruling classes in East, in each of these former Soviet republics that enforced the law, enforced the police state, if you will. And to a large extent, it was a police state. It wasn't just the Red Army. They don't have that in these countries. There's no local ruling class that's going to ally in Poland that's going to ally with the Russians. It's just, it's not an analogous situation. No, I, I don't think so. And going down this road would be really complicated and getting into the whole history of how Russians feel about NATO and what they what they think and what what people in Putin's inner circle likely think about this. That's um, a long story. It starts going all the way back in 1989 when we were negotiating, um, you know, when Jim Baker and Eduard Chevronatse were, were negotiating over the terms of the, the breakup of the of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And the Russians have feelings about what happened uh, since then. They, they believe that certain reassurances were made. But none of that means that, you know, they're, they're on the precipice of invading Poland or or, or the Baltic states. Like, I, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, although that premise is based on... Um, the idea that Putin is a rational actor, which I, I'm, I'm now having to reconsider a little bit. So, All right. Well, that's a good segue to the article. So I'm, I'm with you up until, what is it, a week and a half ago or whatever the invasion was. I believed Putin was a rational actor. And let's so tell us the story about Putin. Just give us a real sense of who this guy is and how he became the leader of Russia, and because we're not hearing much other than he's terrible. Sure. So, uh, just for for people who don't know, I I lived in the former Soviet Union for the entirety of the '90s, um, and I was there for the the transfer of power uh, from Yeltsin to Putin. Uh, for Putin's first election and the first few years of his rule there. I uh, was a resident of the city of St. Petersburg in the early 90s when he was getting his uh, start in politics. Uh, He began as an advisor to the first democratically elected mayor of um, the former Leningrad St. Petersburg, uh, Anatoly Sobchak. He worked his way up to uh, deputy mayor, and that's what he was when Subcheck finally lost election in 1996. Now there are a million stories about the corruption that went on um, under Subcheck. Subcheck was one of America's favorite politicians, by the way. He was a Vaclav Havel type figure. He was an academic. Uh, spoke very good English. He was very. Um, he had a literary sensibility. Uh, he was thought of as this great 
democratic theoretic theorist. He was the author of the first the Russian Federation's first constitution, and Putin was really his right right hand man. Now, if you ask people who live in the city at that time, they will tell you that his role was less. Um, uh, democratic than it was uh, as a as a kind of bag man uh, who went around the city basically collecting on protection rackets that the uh, the government um, uh, held at that time. Basically, Russia has always been kind of a a mob state, a connate where where the the the, the ruling political system is that there's a strong man who gets uh, tribute kicked upward uh, to the boss who allows various groups to operate and negotiates conflict, you know, divisions between uh, different criminal and political interests. And that's what happens in cities. And Putin was understood to be kind of the bagman for Anatoly Sobchak. That's how he got his start. Now, Sobchak got in trouble uh, in 1996 and 1997. He was voted out. He was unpopular for a variety of reasons, um, including that some people in the local government felt that he was, um, uh, among other things, he was privatizing apartments to all of his friends in a way that that, that uh, some people considered unseemly. So he, he was about to be criminally charged um, in 1996 and 1997. And Putin, who was a former KGB man, helped engineer Sobchak's uh, flight out of the country. Uh, he went to Finland first and then ended up in Paris, and this is how he invaded federal, evaded federal prosecution. Uh, according to Boris Yeltsin's own biography, Midnight Diaries, uh, this was what brought him to the attention of the Yeltsin regime. The fact that he had secured the safe exit uh, of his corrupt boss, and it was around that time that Putin was essentially brought in to the Yeltsin White House. And here you'd have to know a whole lot about what went on in Yeltsin's Russia in the 90s to understand the significance of this. Can you give us, get, yeah, do it quick as you can. Basically, picture because some of the viewers may not know. Basically, the, in the 90s, Russia had to privatize all of the Soviet industries. Uh, and the, the way they did it was in this. Uh, incredibly rapid fashion where they held a series of auctions where the Russian state lent money to a handful of friends of Boris Yeltsin um, so that they could bid and win auctions for companies the size of Exxon and Microsoft. Uh, and they instantly became some of the world's richest people. People know their names. They have names like Misha Khodorkovsky, uh, Vladimir Putin, and Boris Berezovsky. Uh, so they were, they overnight created an oligarch class this was done sort of Part, some of whom who had been party bureaucrats themselves but party bureaucrats Komsomol members in other words they were connected with russian intelligence um and uh yes they had all been party bureaucrats almost almost all of them uh and the idea was and america was sort of behind some of these transactions we helped design these auctions the idea was to create a super empowered oligarch class that would help defend the nascent Russian democracy against a revanchist communist movement that was threatening to win the 1996 elections. So we sort of instantly gifted all of Russia's wealth to a handful of people who in turn backed Boris Yeltsin's 1996 
um, uh, presidential election campaign. He went from being at 7% to the poll in the polls to winning. Uh, so uh, there were, there was all kinds of corruption that was going on, you know, handing over these massive companies that were worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, in addition to that, there was just common thievery going on in the Yeltsin, uh, administration, Yeltsin himself was taking no limit credit cards from Swiss construction companies. There was just massive looting from the state property committee, which held all the former communist party holdings. And so he was worried about being prosecuted on the way out. And, and the, basically the idea of Putin was that he was going to guarantee safe passage for Yeltsin, um, uh, on his way out of the country. Yeltsin was about to be, he was being um, pursued by a prosecutor named Yuri Skaratov uh, in the late 90s. And you remember during Russiagate, we heard all those stories about sexual blackmail and how great uh, Putin was at that. Well, the first time he did that, it, that we know about, was involved this prosecutor, Skaratov, uh, who was going after Yeltsin over the Swiss construction firm scandal. And Putin went on television as the new head of the FSB uh, and showed the entire country a grainy videotape of the sort of obese Skarat of cavorting with prostitutes on television. And that was the end of him. Um, and so this was Yeltsin's role. He was he was the, the hatchet man for our guy, our man in Havana, Boris Yeltsin. And as such... You know, for roughly a three-year period, almost a four-year period, the Western media was incredibly um, sort of complimentary of of Putin in a way that's been completely whitewashed out of out of the public memory because, of yes, course, Steve, what he, mm-hmm. Stephen Cohen had a, a line. I, I don't know if it's his or not, but what what the West thought they got and wanted was a sober Yeltsin. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, you, you can look, uh, uh, you know, your own finance minister, uh, Christia Freeland, at the time. Oh, no, 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 no. When you mention her name, I go back to being an American. I'm dual citizen. <laughs> I, get, I get to ch- mention her. I'm back to being an American. So go ahead. But I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to read a passage that she wrote in the year 2000. Um, this is what she wrote in the, in the New Statesman. It looks as if we're about to fall in love with Russia all over again. Compared to the ailing, drink-addled figure Boris Yeltsin cut in his later years, his successor, Vladimir Putin, in the eyes of many Western observers, seems ref- refreshingly direct, decisive, and energetic. Uh, and then she talks about how Tony Blair was complimenting him and, and Bill Clinton and all these other people and the World Bank loved him. And this has all been forgotten. And this is that was the point. Of the piece and I another thing which I think has been forgotten and remind me if I'm correct about this, but wasn't in the early 2000s. Uh, n- not only was he uh, a kind of a darling of the West, he was actually at the time NATO was expanding, negotiating in a very friendly way with NATO. And, and in fact, didn't object to that expansion at the time. The, so there, there were even quotes by him in uh, a New York Times uh, magazine profile where he's asked directly about the possibility of Russia someday joining NATO. And he says, like, I wouldn't rule it out. You know, it's, it's something we'd have to consider. Uh, so there was there was this real interest. I mean, there, there were to be fair, there was some guardedness on the on the point of, on the part of the expat reporter community, because 
we had all we all knew what was going on. Like it, it didn't take very long for Putin to show his real colors. There there were um, you know, friends of mine, reporters in the Russian reporting community who were beaten, shot at, uh, you know, for investigating him. Uh, that was very early on. Uh, so we, we immediately knew what he was all about. Uh, and, and you knew the journalist. I always screw up her name. Is it Polinskaya? Uh, uh, you... Anna Politkovskaya. I knew her. I, I, knew I, her. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was close friends with her, but you know what I, but I, met with her multiple times around that time when especially when um one of his first crises involved the launching of the second chechen war uh and this was a a crazy period in russia's history where um it was kind of a wag the dog situation where the idea was uh it seemed that the russian state wanted to start a war in chechnya for a variety of reasons, to get the public's mind off a whole bunch of things that were going on uh, domestically. But they launched the war, and the pretext of it uh, for, for that war was a series of apartment bombings um, that were attributed to Chechen terrorists. Now, I'm, I'm like an anti-conspiracy theorist. I'm one of those people who cannot stand uh, stories like 9-11 Truth. I have a very low tolerance for this, for that kind of story. But there was sig- a little too a too low in my mind, but go ahead. Right, yeah, I've been criticized for that. the <laughs> The Russian apartment bombing story, what it was legit. It had it had teeth. There were there was there was actual legitimate evidence that the that the Putin's FSB had some kind of hand in those bombings. At least one that we know of. There was an incident in a city called Rizan where um, a bomb was discovered before it went off by local police who were kind of acting at cross purposes with the, the, the feds and they tested it. They found that it, it contained a, a material called hexogen, which was used only by, you know, sophisticated military, uh, militaries around the world, including Russia. Uh, there was a, a, um, a car that had delivered the bomb. They got the license plate of it that traced back to the FSB. The FSB admitted they were there, said it was a training exercise. Um, so th- friends of mine who worked for newspapers like Novia Gazeta uh, were investigating this and Putin started his crackdown really on the press over that issue. And that, that was where he first started to come out as a, as a real hardcore autocrat um, was, was during that time. And so, so those quotes that I that I read to you from, from uh, you know, Christopher Freeland and other and people like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the World Bank was talking about how they were going to be better off with him uh, because he was going to defend against a centrally planned economy. This all came after uh, stuff like that, uh, and so. And let me let me just add because it's not that they didn't know about all this stuff you're describing about Putin it's because they all do it too. Well, yeah. he's, I mean, he's just, he's there, you know, he's, he is, maybe it isn't quite as overt in Russia, but only because at the stage of development, not, not for no other reason. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. Look, we, we have a long history. The IMF, the world bank has a long history of, of kind of palling up with the, the local strongman, Um, and, you know, so executing these neoliberal structural adjustment programs where the idea is, you know, there's unlimited capital that comes from the West that the the local ruler gets to use to prop up the regime. Uh, 
in exchange, there's going to be kind of free access to the markets uh, by Western companies. And there, were, there was an expectation that Putin was going to be exactly that person who was going to be able to execute that plan. In fact, he was going to be much better at it, as, he, as Stephen Cohen pointed out, than Yeltsin, who was incompetent in a lot of a lot of unnecessary ways, right? Uh, very unstable, despite having, um, you know, a, a really firm grip on power in Russia. Uh, but Putin was expected to be like the 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 sober, dependable version of Yeltsin, and and so that he was treated like that uh, and welcomed with open arms, um, until suddenly he became public enemy number one because he changed the deal. Uh, after 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 Yeltsin was out, after he became president, he switched up the original deal for those oligarchs. You know, um, instead. Of, and so what? In what? In what way? So originally, they were gifted all those companies in exchange for this idea that they would back Boris Yeltsin, and by extension, this sort of plan of Westernization that Yeltsin had started uh, down the road toward. Uh, Putin called them all these people in, the same people who were gifted all of those companies in, in the privatization auctions, and, and essentially said, uh, okay, you get to keep all that stuff, but on a couple of conditions. Number one, you pledge absolute allegiance to me. Number two, none of you are going to have your own political ambitions. So, uh, and the, the third piece of that was that we're going to stop taking all the capital out of the country. We're going we're gonna to keep a little bit of it at home for development. Uh, because his idea was, he basically made a bet that he would survive longer as a nationalist than he would as a, as a sort of piece of a global system. And, and, and didn't, it, didn't it, in terms of even the interests of the oligarchs as a class, Makes sense that you have an actual system with an actual government with laws. You you actually will be richer, make more money, if there's a government that works for you, but in a somewhat you know systemically rational way. So even if an individual oligarch didn't like it, it was good for them as a class. Yeah, I I think I think on the whole they they benefited from this uh, because um, you know they they had protection from a uh you know a very powerful leader who was willing to squelch all opposition and didn't and um you know there wasn't going to be any western interference about anything like pollution or workers rights or anything like that uh and um they got to keep their monopolies in whatever in whatever industry uh they were in uh now one thing i i don't know or understand about this period is why didn't the west get a bigger direct ownership stake I mean, how was, why didn't they get, you know, I, I would have thought that's what they would have expected, a, a very weak Russian state. And eventually the oligarchs have to become subordinate to the Western oligarchs. Yeah, there, there, was a, there was a big debate about whether or not, whether or not to allow Westerners to participate in, in the original auctions. Um, obviously they would have attracted, you know, a thousand times the capital they actually got uh, because they were basically limited to the capital that existed in Russia at the time, which was not much. Um, but in the end, they decided not to do that. Um, it, it actually escapes me at the time, at, uh, at the moment, why why it was it was decided that way. But it was the, the loans for shares auctions didn't allow 
uh, foreign bids. So these massive companies like Yukos and Onexum Bank and Norilsk Nickel, which you know control huge portions of the world's world's mineral mineral reserves and petroleum reserves and timber and all these other things, um, we weren't allowed to bid on it. So uh, the Russians got to keep all of it. And then after Putin cemented his rule, uh, it was basically, uh, you know, the the understanding was that these companies were going to remain Russian, and that the they were they were not going to suck all of the profits out of the country and and put them in Swiss bank accounts. There was going to be some reinvestment in the country, which is why. You know, people who go back went back and visited Moscow ten years after two thousand were shocked to see the development. I mean, it's it's a completely different city and now than it was, and the the country's still largely the same, but there there's been significant investment. So at some point, the the Russian state starts having more direct ownership in some of the oil and gas companies. I know in the military industrial complex, which is. I, th I think it's 30% of manufacturing workers in, in, yeah. in Russia work in the arms arms industry. Um, but the state's actual direct ownership starts to become quite significant. Uh, I know in the arms company, if, if, I, if I'm right, it's something the state owns, something like 70, 80%. Yeah, Russ Rodigen, yeah. The private piece is about 20. Yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but that sounds right. Like, you know, Russ Rodigen is... is one of those companies there are there are a number of sort of nationalized russian companies um you know for the for the most part they're private uh or privatized uh but yeah that, that there is that uh so, and some of the companies are like quasi public um you know like gazprom right so uh but it, it, there's certainly an enormous power base for uh for Russia, well, not enormous compared to a, com a country like China. Like they, they never had the massive industrial economy that a country like China had. What they, what they did have is an is enormous reserves of natural resources, which um, you know when oil prices are high, uh, allowed them to be a fairly wealthy country. You know, like relatively, um, the, the the old saying that that the Soviet Union was upper vaulted with rockets uh started to change a little bit i mean russia was still extremely poor in the in the 90s the the wealth discrepancy was just enormous um it still is it's just slightly it's slightly more tenable for the ordinary person maybe now than it was before so carry on with the story then so why and and when does putin start to become you know the 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 devil well so the first thing was when when Yeltsin was running the country, we had basically free access to the to the Kremlin. Um, people who were extremely close to uh, the United States uh, and the diplomatic community in Moscow, and these were Russian politicians, English-speaking Russian politicians. Many of them trained at Harvard, like Anatoly Chubais, uh, Yegor Gaidar. Um, Boris Nemtsov, Maxim Boyko, uh, these people were essentially kind of the ambassadors of the United States, and they were in the Yeltsin White House effect, uh, affecting policy. Um, we more or less controlled Russian economic policy for years and years and years. Uh, 
Putin's one of his first moves was to get rid of all the American connected uh, sort of Harvard trained or Ivy trained uh, officials inside his government. These, these are the shock therapy guys. Right, right, exactly. The, what they, we used to call them the energetic young reformers. That was the, the name that they had back then. Um, and this set him down the road to doing things like kicking out USAID, um, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute. And the significance of that is interesting because back in 1996, um, when it, it was looking like Boris Yeltsin was going to lose re-election uh, to the communist Gennady Zuganov, uh, these American institutions like the IRI, the NDI, um, they, they spend enormous amounts of money on what they call kind of pro-democracy campaigns. Um, and the, there would be television commercials that were a variation of voter on, voter lose right they had a, they had one that was called Galasui Ely right like vote like voter vote or whatever right um and essentially they were pro Yeltsin commercials so we 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 funneled millions of dollars really into this kind of anti-Zuganov movement and and Putin being no dummy he understood that that these organizations essentially existed in Russia to advance American interests um, and kick them out. Uh, and it was that, it was the re redoing of, the, of the, the deal with the oligarchs. It was preventing people for like uh, Misha Kartakovsky, who we were close to from uh, pursuing his own political ambitions. Um, but the instant we sort of cut him out, cut, uh, he cut us out of the deal, he became public enemy number one. I mean, this is very similar to the Saddam Hussein story or any of a dozen other stories involving sort of dictators we were friends with and then they turn on us and suddenly they're, you know, members of the Hitler of the Month Club. Noriega is another one, right? So, um, and that, that happened. I mean, Hitler was a member right. of that Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Hitler, Hitler, he was the founding member of the Hitler of the Month Club. Uh, so, yeah, in, in, in 2001, 2002, 2003, because there was, there was a little blip there with 9-11, remember, there was, there was some sharing of information for security that kind of made the relation, kept the relationship from going completely sour. Um, but that we start to turn against him rhetorically uh, around that time, I would say. And this all happened after well, I left, so, yeah. Well, what was that moment of Hillary Clinton and that crazy red button where we're going to reboot the relationship? What, what, what the hell were their expectations? Yeah, um, I don't know. The, 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 I forget whether the button was supposed to read. It was supposed to be Peregruska, I think, and it was Perezagruska, which so, so they got the translation wrong. And so um, instead of reboot, it was like reload. I forget what it was. Um, but, uh, well, that was, that turned out to be more accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, but I, I think Obama always had, uh, an interest in pursuing kind of a, a more pragmatic, real politic type, uh, relationship with, with Russia. Um, I mean, his attitude towards Ukraine is now infamous. Uh, if you go back and look at his interviews about it he's you know he said openly in an interview with um uh the atlantic that 
Ukraine was always going to mean more to Russia than it's going than it, than it will to us. Uh, it's not worth going to war over, and we just just might as well just admit that. And this was seen as a green light uh, for Putin to go into to Crimea, but I I don't think that propaganda line is exactly is exactly right because um, there was also the Maidan revolution in Ukraine and mixed in there, which some people see as a provocation that that led to to Putin going into Crimea. But either way, I think I think um, Obama always had this idea that uh, the way to deal with Russia was more as, you know, uh, a, a practical, potentially a strategic partner, certainly in Syria, for instance. Um, he preferred that that route. He was over overruled, essentially, um, by people within his own administration who who wanted to go a different way. And so um, I think this is all what we're, what we're dealing with now is this split about how, how to deal with Russia that started back with the Syria crisis um, in, you know, 2000, you know, 14, 15 and Maidan and Crimea and all that. Uh, Mike's some Russian lefty friends of mine, have to, have sort of cautioned me over the years, not right now, but up until right now, anyway, not to exaggerate Putin the individual that he represents a, a whole clique of bureaucrats, uh, state, you know, that the whole state machine. There's a lot of people in that state that have power, and yeah, he's the leader of it, but it's not a situation where he's like like the emperor the way. He's been described uh, that. But I'm not so sure. I saw th that television thing with him and the head of the uh, I, the foreign intelligence uh, agency of Russia. Did yeah, you see yeah, that yeah. where he's I mean, the way he humiliated that guy, it makes me wonder if maybe it really is a, or has become a one man show. Yeah. And and this is what, um, you know, I heard, too. I reconnected with some old friends in the last couple of weeks. Uh that um, you know, there were a lot of reports by people who cover Putin constantly, you know, Russian reporters who were indicating that even his top advisors weren't really privy to the invasion plan until the last minute. Um, there was a Security Council meeting that they had three days before the invasion where um, one one Russian reporter compared it to a, a bunch of school kids who were being given a uh, a surprise test. Like they they looked like they had no idea what was going on, and um, there may be something to that. Like in in general, I agree with you. I think it's it's usually wrong to pathologize and personalize political stories. We should always like the classic example is is Trump. The media love to make so much out of his individual faults, whereas the real issue in America is they're always systemic, right? Like, you know, having to do with structures and, um, you know, uh, sort of administrative uh, bureaucracies. In, but in Russia, you know, there, there may be something to the idea that he, he accumulated enough power in his own hands, and he's, a, he's, he's definitely got some unusual character leanings. Um, that maybe that's that's you know a thing that we really should be paying attention to that this that this isn't necessarily an expression of a systemic desire to to expand 
you know, it may, it may have a lot to do with what he personally wants. Well, let me, although I, I, I do think that is possible. I think if Putin's gone tomorrow, there will be another sort of Putin because until the West recognizes that objectively Russia is a, a regional power, not just another country in Europe, uh, because of the size of the population, which is what doubled Germany's, uh, the, the massive resources, certainly the, the potential to be more of an industrial power. And it's not just the country with a gas station, as it's, you know, what some people call it. And there is an industrial base there, in, including a big arms industry, which is very competitive with the American arms industry. I was surprised to find out that in 60% of India's uh, military military hardware comes from Russia. I didn't realize it was actually a majority. Yeah, and we're thinking about slapping um, sanctions on them for for buying Russian hardware. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Push India towards Russia and China. I, I, this whole policy has been pretty stupid. I mean that. <clears throat> I mean, I, I keep going back and forth here because I don't want in any way diminish what's happening to the civilians in Ukraine. Uh, because there's you know thousands of people that are being killed and injured. And I have, frankly, pretty much the same sympathy for Russian soldiers who are just working-class kids who didn't know what else to do but join the army. Well, and mm -hmm. I think it's, it's wrong the way we think it's okay when soldiers die uh, and we're only worried about civilians. Well, they're all bloody more or less ordinary people forced into shitty circumstances oh yeah i mean like i um, and i mentioned this in the article i you know i back in the 90s i i interviewed russian soldiers who who were sent to the first war in chechnya and you know just just being in the army in russia sucks really badly and if you know of anything about what they call dead of china which is this hazing process that Russians go through, which is like way beyond anything that we have in the military. It's sexual abuse. It's, it's, it's absolutely brutal what kids have to go through. And then they got sent to Chechnya without, um, without proper, uh, equipment, without any sense of information about what the mission was, was for. They were selling their weapons to the enemy for food. Uh, these are Russian soldiers I'm talking about in, in the Chechen war. So, yeah, I mean, if you see, if you look at the POW videos from the involving the Russians who got sent in the first wave, a lot of them were just they're barely old enough to shave. They had no idea it was. They were told it was a training exercise, um, and they'd be back in five days. And uh, you know, I, I do have a lot of sympathy for those folks, but I have I have sympathy for Ukrainians too. The the whole thing is just awful on every level, and and. Um, it's it's just strange to me the way people get excited about this. They're like they're they're into it as though it's it's just not a disaster all the way around. Yeah, and I think there is sometimes in the liberal left who so often feels in the minority. Like even on the Iraq War, I mean, clearly, even though so many people came out against the Iraq War, the majority of Americans were for it. There's just these occasional times where actually the interest of sections of the left and liberal line up with the imperialist American mainstream position. And all of a sudden you got wind at your back. And, yeah, you got AOC. Uh, and I know, I know. 
Well, I, I actually, I don't know where she's in on Ukraine. Sanders came out with some stuff that wasn't too bad. Sanders came out saying Russia's security interests and in the expansion of NATO are fully reasonable. He talked about the Monroe Doctrine. Why has she done no, anything she just, differently she just, than that? You know, she had the the Ukrainian flag pin and uh, wearing it during the State of the Union address, which I guess everybody did. But you know, it's still. Um, yeah, I agree. That is an example of what I'm yeah. saying. Uh, I mean, it's, it, I, it, it's not wrong to be sympathetic with with Ukraine uh, by any means. Um, I just think that there there are a lot of people who are ginned up um, and thinking that there's an easy military solution to this and there isn't uh there there's there's no way to fix this but with bombs and missiles that doesn't lead to a, a worse scenario um at least in my mind well let's go let well let's go back to this putin conversation and where we started it uh you and i, I we hadn't talked to each other about it but i think we had pretty much the same conclusion that Putin as a rational actor uh, would not violate international law in such an absolute obvious way. If he did anything, he maybe goes into Donbass and, and sort of protects Donbass. And, and I, I have no idea whether Donbass was really under threat. I, I guess it could have been given that there certainly is a history of such threat from the Ukrainian government. So I, so with, you know, saying, okay, I can, believe that. I don't know it, but I can believe it. But then you go in and you defend Donbass. You don't invade the rest of Ukraine. Um, I, I know his argument. He has to smash the Ukrainian armed forces so that that's, that's the way to protect Donbass, to demilitarize Ukraine, uh, which is ridiculous because if he succeeds and then withdraws, a zillion dollars of arms goes right back into Ukraine again. I mean, it will be even, even more so. And it will be a field day for the American uh, in military industrial complex. I mean, the only way this thing makes any sense to me is that it's it, that is part of the equation. It will also be a field day for the Russian military industrial complex and, and the price of fossil fuels through the roof. And, you know, if you look at Cheney's role in the lead up to the Iraq war, I mean, I, I never believed the Americans would invade Iraq, which shows how, <laughs> how good I am at predicting because I kept saying it's not right. rational. Everybody that knows the situation is, says you cannot win. You will not be able to install a, a pro-American government. Even grabbing the oil, you'll have trouble grabbing the oil. And I didn't get, uh, you know, I did these interviews with Bill Black about the banking crisis. Mm -hmm. I think you know Bill. He's certainly a fan yeah, no, of yours. Yeah, we stuff. know each other. Yeah, yeah definitely uh, fans. Yeah, and he wrote this thing. You don't understand the 0708 crisis by trying to understand what was good for the banks. You have to understand what was good for the bankers. Right. And I think the same things for the military industrial complex. The invasion of Iraq wasn't good for American geopolitics strategically. It was good for Dick Cheney. It was good for Halliburton. It was good for the these goddamn oligarchs that are thieves themselves. And I guess the Russians and the Americans and, and the Ukrainians. I, I mean, that's where I think we have to, at least I want to try to take this conversation, is that this is a global system of how stuff is owned. It's We can't keep on with a system where these oligarchs of all these countries own the commanding uh, pieces of the economy and thus the politics. Because the bigger threat here, and as much as this is terrible what's happening to the people of Ukraine, and of course in Yemen and many other places, but certainly those two are outstanding, the climate crisis is, you know, is facing us within this decade. And, nobody, and it's completely off the right. radar. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I would argue nuclear <laughs> nuclear wars up there too, uh, and and this is this is not making that situation any better either. Um, yeah, I mean, none of this makes a whole lot of sense uh, unless there's some other motive that I don't really understand. Um, most of the people that I talked to before the invasion thought that Putin's uh, massing of troops on the bo- on, on Ukraine's border was a game that he was playing that he was that he was trying to drive a wedge between uh america and europe by uh you know because germany obviously was seeking greater ties uh with russia because it has a cheap energy source they were trying to get that gas pipeline through uh the americans on the other hand had no interest in that pipeline they were they were on the on, on the contrary, very much opposed to that happening, and wanted to expand NATO, uh, uh, theoretically at least, into into Ukraine. I think the Euro- Europeans probably would have, re- you know, rather that Ukraine stay away from NATO and keep the cheap energy. Um, and I think what Putin, we all thought, what Putin was trying to do was was exacerbate these tensions. Um, by by threatening war and forcing the United States to kind of overplay its hand, uh, but this move into you know into Western Ukraine was what completely threw everybody. Like it was one thing to recognize uh, Donbass and uh, you know Donetsk and Luhansk, those two regions, uh, but to bring the war to the other side of the country was totally mind-blowing like i it, it's very very difficult to understand what the upside is there unless unless you're counting on there being a long insurgency and that's somehow a positive for you like i i don't understand why they would do that i don't i, I actually agree with the much criticized um university of chicago professor john mearsheimer who says that um, he doesn't think that Putin has designs on the all of Ukraine. Uh, I actually still kind of doubt that too, even though there's, they're conducting a war over there. I think his plan is probably to. Inst- oh, he can't. He can't. He can't. He, well, he's going to get into a long-term occupation of Ukraine and an endless. No, war. it doesn't make no. any sense. I mean, I think he wants to install a government that would be, you know, subservient to him, but. Um, but you know, why, but why do that? Why why not just move into Luhansk and Donetsk and and you? Know, right? I, I don't get it. And unless you want and you want, like I I firmly believe in some conspiracies. In fact, the uh, the Iraq War shows what was a bigger conspiracy than claiming there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and trying to enforce that throughout the various agencies to say that there's weapons of mass destruction. It was a total lie, a full-scale conspiracy. Even when uh, Valerie Plame's husband comes back, I interviewed him, and he comes back and says there's no yellow cake. They, they have a whole conspiracy to uh, demolish Plame and uh, Wilson and, and slander them. I mean- No, it was incredible. War is conspiracy. War is conspiracy and lies. It's one of the tactics of war, and it's it's just another weapon in your arsenal. Lie through your teeth, and conspire because there's you can't have it. I don't think there's such a thing as a war right. without those things. Um, but that that being said, uh, this war this war in Ukraine, unless various oligarchs and and interests wanted it, was so avoidable. Start with the Ukrainian government could have declared neutrality. 
take NATO off the table because it was never happening anyway. So they're defending a fiction. Take it off the table. Two, ridiculous even sounding like you might want nuclear weapons someday. How insane is that? I don't believe they ever would be. I don't think it was true. But there was a, words came out of Zelensky's mouth that, that sounded something like that. Uh, three, recognized uh, that there needs to be a legitimate referendum in Donbass. And so what? So, so they're in a, uh, independent republics. So you try to win them over economically. I mean, unless you want endless conflict with Donbass, because you know, it, it's never going away with Russia there. So, so the Ukrainian government had all everything in its hands not to have this happen and didn't do any of it. Russia, I don't buy any of their arguments. There was no imminent no. threat from Ukraine. Donbass maybe was under threat. There was ways to defend that. Well, uh, you have to remember uh, there, there was a the long other thing, conflict but, where a lot of people died in those in, in those in those regions. So, yeah, good reason to good reason to think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I actually don't think even if a nuclear weapon was in Ukraine, what the hell would it change? There's nuclear weapons all over the place pointed at Russia. What it pick they pick up twenty seven seconds or something? Or I mean, there's. The, the, as long as there's such a thing as Russian submarines with the ability to wipe out the United States, it, re, it makes no ta real, unless I'm wrong, but I'm doing this work with this film with Ellsberg now, and I know more than I used to about this. As long as you've got the subs, you've got the uh, deterrent. So, uh, you know, nukes in Ukraine, nukes in Poland here and there. Okay, it sounds terrible, but the truth is, is you can still wipe out your enemy, so... What big difference does it make? And then, of course, the Americans, every single word out of the Americans is hypocritical. Uh, although Putin has given them a oh, great yeah, gift. Yeah, now, all of a sudden, we can't say never believe American intelligence agencies. You can never it's say that again. It, it, you know, it, because this is like Christmas morning every day for military propagandists and intelligence propagandists in America, because now, you know, this is the eternal gift that, you know, we'll keep on giving for a generation. Um but, you know, we'll, never again will we be able to say that it's irrational to to you know bring a country into uh, a military alliance or or to build up um you know to spend money on, on weaponry and intelligence and that sort of thing so yeah uh there's there's a lot to be concerned about though with this i i think the american public is is not recognizing the scale of you know some of what's going on the the idea of just sort of willy-nilly getting companies like Google and Apple to shut off services to the entire country, you know, all, all of Russia uh, on the premise that we have to inflict pain on the population so that they overthrow their leader. Um, are we are we ready for other countries to, to apply the same, same logic to us uh, who might decide to cut off services to us for, for some reason? Uh, I, I worry about this thing that we're hearing from people like uh, Fiona Hill, that we're already in World War III, um, so that, you know, we, we, we have to do everything possible, um, you know, short of open armed conflict. And, and they will get to that, too. Like, they'll, <laughs> people, will, they'll, they'll get to calling for uh, a no-fly zone or, and, and, you know, American troops deployed to the region. I'm, I'm confident of that. It'll just take a while. Oh, I don't know. I was a little, I can't believe I'm about to say something positive about Mark oh, yeah. Rubio. 
Uh, this never in my life would I have imagined it. But Rubio last Sunday on uh, stepping off of the show came so very forthrightly against the no-fly zone. He just said, if you have a no-fly zone, you're declaring World War III. And you better be ready for all-out nuclear war. I mean, I that he was very firmly against it, which suggests at least there's some rationality left in even some of the right wing of the yeah. elites. At least they're worried about nuclear war. On the other hand, the level of hysteria, the fact that they they either fired or removed the lead opera singer of the Metropolitan Opera, a Russian woman, because she wouldn't sign the yeah, document it was like a loyalty denouncing of, Putin. Yeah, this is. This is worse. I mean, it's it's at the very least the McCarthyite. Yeah, no, it's straight insane. out of Catch Twenty Two. It's it's the loyalty oath, right? I mean, it's um, yeah, and and the Canadian Hockey League barring Russians and Belarusians from the draft, and uh, you know, the International Federation of Cats barring Russian cats. I mean, this stuff is crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah but really? you know, the, the stuff that really makes me nervous though is the the whole like. You know, Visa, Master, Mastercard, banking services being shut off, like the the, the cyber war ideas that we're kind of un, unleashing. Um, you know, that makes me that makes me very nervous. Uh, be... Well, it's clear they want regime change in Moscow, uh, and I don't know enough about what's going on in Moscow to know if it's possible. Uh, I mean, there's actually a part of me, honestly, that I won't think I'd mind. Uh, regime change, the, the fall of Putin at this point. I know a lot of people are going to write in and say, how dare you say that? I just think the danger of nuclear war, if if there's a lack of rationality in Moscow and the hysteria that's developing in Washington right now, uh, the, yeah, I don't the sh sh I don't think there'd be this careful planning of a nuclear war right now, but right. boy, and, shit and, can happen. And I'm kind of with you, like if, if, if Putin was not in power tomorrow, like I'm certainly not going to shed a tear about that the guy the guy's been um you know i i think he's he, he's been repressive autocratic anti-democratic uh from the beginning uh and has had a, ne a severely negative impact on on russia's history recent history notwithstanding uh our foreign policy mistakes in the region and, and just to get back to the the subject the original subject of this conversation um you know my attitude when i was there and what what i i observed in so many of my friends who are expats who lived in russia observed at the time was that our policy towards russia and ukraine at the time was so focused on controlling these countries on making sure that they they went down a certain path that they elected the right people that they um, you know, adopted the correct policies. We pressured them so much into, uh, you know, cutting off uh, um, health care and free uh, energy subsidies for apartments and free higher education and all kinds of other things um, as part of our shock therapy doctrine. Uh, and we, it was, it was like central to our whole idea of how we got on with Russia that we were, go we were going to make sure that somehow our people were in charge right and they there was a profound resentment that grew out of that from the russian people and and it was part of the reason that that um putin enjoyed popularity because he was seen as somebody who was standing up to the west 
And I, I always thought that was a massive mistake. This idea that, you know, we, we should have, I think what we should have done is envisioned um, a Russia that was independent, but could be a strategic and e economic partner on some way. Right. And we didn't do that. I think we, we, we wanted to make Russia into a vassal state uh, and that, uh, that backfired. Um, so, the, you know, well, would I be sad if Putin was was no longer the leader? Of course not. Um, but I, the, these people who want to do regime change in Russia all stems from the same problem that they had at the beginning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they thought it was their responsibility yeah. To, yeah, yeah, to, sure. to decide who gets to sit in the Kremlin. and, and... Cause, Because the United States wants to maintain hegemony in Europe and Russia is so big, they're, they're an actual rival in Europe. But I got the solution to all of this. What's that? Nationalize all the major fossil fuel companies. <laughs> phase them out quickly, as quickly as possible. Get the world off fossil fuel. And then Russia will have to have a different kind of economy, as will Canada and some other places, Saudi Arabia. And that will force on Russia not the kind of distortion of politics that fossil fuel economies create. And it will also change American politics. And, that, and, and so I'm going to dedicate the analysis to nationalizing fossil fuel companies. I don't know who that <laughs> gives a damn whether what we do here. But that said, that is, it's, it's the solution mm -hmm. to inflation. It's how many wars are fought over oil, the military industrial complex. Uh, you know, what the hell would they fight over if there wasn't right. a fossil fuel economy? I'm, I'm sure they'd look for something, but... Yeah, nationalized in these extraordinary times when you can destroy the banking system of a country, you can change every kind of thing overnight that no one would imagine. Okay, let's really do it. Let's get rid of fossil fuel and you'll change the whole politics. And, and of course, not to say the least, actually save organized human society. It sounds like kind of a two, two for one. I like, I, I, I'm all in favor of phasing out fossil fuels. I think that's a great idea. Um, we haven't done enough to to try to make that happen, um, and yeah, and the the hypocrisy of of uh, bashing these foreign autocracies while we're dependent on countries like Saudi Arabia is like unbelievable to me that we that we still persist in that, and it would be great if we didn't have to do that, you know. Um, well, we don't have to do that, but uh, it would make it even easier to not make those horrible decisions. So, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Let's let's do this again. Of course, soon. anytime. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. And I and go to Matt's Substack. And the article was called "Putin the, Putin the Apostate." Uh, Putin the Apostate. It's really a, a, an important piece to read. So check check Matt out there. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis News. And again, we got to donate for us to keep doing it. And. Most important thing, get on our email list. Uh, those of you know, Matt wrote this piece about how YouTube was screwing around with our videos. Uh, thanks to Matt's piece, the, two of the three videos got back up again. Excellent. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we're sure they're still screwing with our, our view count. It's like our subscribers never change. Even when we have a story that breaks through, and we used to break through, it was like 80,000, 90,000 views. Now breakthrough for us, we're lucky to get to 10,000. Still, no, almost no new subscribers ever. Like they, in a month, if we pick up a hundred new subscribers or even fifty, we're doing well. Even 
when we're doing videos that are doing 10 and 15,000. Like it's not. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. It, it, there's got to be a BS with the uh, algorithm going on. Anyway, I'll, I'll whine about that more another time. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think there's a lot of shenanigans going on with that kind of stuff, and and uh, it's a totally, it's a almost completely uncovered story, which is which is amazing. Um, but yeah, I'm so I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. All right, thanks a lot, Matt, and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news.